Welcome to today's episode of the Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so we can learn to become who we were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith. If you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share the podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at jbirdfit. Today, I have a very special guest for you, Anna Lee Howling. Anna Lee is a highly qualified performance coach with over 20 years experience working with leaders in business, elite sportspersons, and members of the armed forces, including ex-UK special forces. She specializes in transitional support and through her unique approach is able to ensure her clients overcome any self-imposed limitations to achieve their goals and move forward with confidence and a more fulfilling life. Annalie, welcome to the podcast. And I can't tell you how happy I am to have you on the show. For me, this is a full circle moment. A year and a half ago, I was healing from a shoulder surgery and a neck injury. And your content provided context, language, and inspiration for a change in my life. It was a time where I was about to make a massive pivot. One that's brought me here with you today. And this journey as a coach and content creator has been like this for me, where I just keep asking people to show up. I keep asking people to be on the podcast and they say yes. And so I'm very grateful for you for having said yes today. But I'm also grateful because I know this conversation is going to be one that changes people's lives. So Annalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for those gorgeous words. I feel very honoured. So my name is Annalie Howling. I'm based in London in the UK, but I travel extensively. I have clients all over the world, particularly in the States, actually. Uh, Big clientele over there. Uh, I work with veterans of the armed forces. Um, I specialise in trauma work as well as coaching for performance. So it might be a corporate athlete, you know, someone that's a C-suite, the very top of their game there, and through to professional athletes and sports persons, and then individuals that have got something that's a roadblock in their life they maybe can't get past and they want to navigate that. So um, I love what I do. I find it really, really fulfilling. And a bit like you, I had a pivot at one point in my life, I had a very big corporate job, I've got an MBA in economics, you know, I had, I'm a type A by nature, I had that lifestyle, had a hideous burnout, reassessed all the things, I mean, you had a shoulder surgery to sit in a chair, I had yeah. a burnout to just sort of, you know, not be able to function for a while, and it just makes you reassess kind of what you're on this earth for, and I believe very similarly to you, my purpose is to help other people just shine, you know, and be free of limitations, so uh, that's me. When we talk about burnout, what was that experience like for you and how did you navigate that? I think the easiest way of me describing it, I described it recently in this way, like you start off thinking, oh, I must have like, a, I must be ill or I must, I'll go to the doctors or I must have, maybe I've got an intolerance, so I'll get some tests done. You know, maybe I've, um, you, you go through this like raft of all these possible things that it could be. Yeah, there's clearly a problem with me somewhere. Really, you know, yeah. and I'm sure what I can do is take another thing. Like, let's be honest, slap on another Band-Aid. I can just keep, I'll take this supplement. I'll take that painkiller. I'll add on that exercise class. I'll add on, I'll add on Band-Aid, 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 Band-Aid. And you're getting nowhere near the wound. If anything, I'm trying to avoid the wound that is now like pouring out everywhere. And the reality was I was intolerant, but I was intolerant to my life. So what had to happen was I had to remove the massive, great, big, obvious thing that was there, which was my job mainly. That was the main anchor point that took up, you know, all of my time and 
uh, drained all of my energy into that and was very toxic for me. Um, but that's a huge thing, obviously, much like yourself and people listening, you know, what do you do? And I didn't know what I wanted to do next. It wasn't like there was a, oh, hey, look, that's killing you, by the way. But if you do this and here it is, and although you haven't trained in it, educated yourself in it, done it before, anything like that, this is going to make you happy and healthy. You don't know that. So it's a really scary time to um, just understand that this is this is harming me and people around me that I care about. And I have to just start taking a step in a direction and much like yourself saying if you ask people they're saying yes the path will just continue and, and become clear so yeah that was how it started and this is how it's going <laughs> how do you deal with the imposter syndrome around doing something that you've never done before you didn't know exactly where you were going but you knew a shift had to happen and so you start that process of trying to figure these things out maybe you're making a list and writing things down and what was your process to figure that out for yourself so I was very lucky. I had, um, this is like a long time ago, you know, I'm 42 now. This was just before I turned 30. I had a big burnout. So, uh, and a really, really dear friend of mine had just trained in coaching in the States. And it was quite a wacky woo-woo thing, particularly in the UK then. It was not standard like it is now. You know, Wendy Rhodes right. thing and made it great for everyone. It was like, it was a bit weird and out there. And uh, anyway, but she'd done this and I love her dearly. And, and she said to me, let me do a session with you and we'll do a guided visualization. And I was like, uh, you know, a little bit skeptical, but great. And uh, it was so transformative and it was so impactful. And I can see it as clearly now as I did then in my mind. And so many things from that have become true including things that I couldn't possibly have known at that time obviously it's my subconscious was speaking right. to me, but that was the first time I think that you know we were talking earlier about like the busyness and you know the band-aids and the layering on I think it was the first time that I was quiet enough to be able to connect to that part of myself anyway it was so impactful on me and then also add on that I am a type a so I was like I have to know everything about coaching like what is this coaching thing so then I um quit my job but I immediately started my own organization and started doing it as a consultant so I was doing the same role but working for myself so I had some flexibility a couple of literally I think it was one day a week I had to myself and then I started the coach training program and took myself off to the states for a lot of it to be completely immersed in it because I'm going to do anything I'm going to do it the best. Right. Best me. Like I, want, be. I want the medals. I want the badges. I want certificates. So no. yeah, I took myself over there to really immerse myself in everything and just kind of just indulged in every modality, the certifications in all of it. So team coaching, systems coaching, family, romantic relationship, uh, you know, in the business organization, one-to-one, um, everything and then did all the certifications and the psychometric testing and you name it, which and I loved. And every time I, you know, I did something else, the path would illuminate the next step for me. And obviously you start meeting this community of people as well. And everyone had quite a similar story, which I'm sure you're finding when you start moving into the, you know, into the industry, you start understanding as well that actually what happened to you is um, worryingly normal. But, you know, people have had an event that has made them pivot, burnout, injury, something else, you know, a life event. Uh, and that is that sort of really how it began for me. So I'm incredibly grateful that I had that I have that wonderful friend and I had access to that. And thankfully, coaching now is so much more kind of day to day, accessible, affordable, great quality. Um, and it's not considered to be something unusual. So that was how that began for me. How can we really dive into that version of ourselves, you know, to dive into the subconscious and maybe start working through our inner critic? 
Okay, so I mean, the inner critic, to give a little, a little background on that, which is kind of where I specialize. So the inner critic is a well-meaning friend that's just got it wrong. So they're trying their best. They're like an overbearing aunt. And they, they're really trying their best to look after you. But you're like, oh, my God, this is just not working for me. So anyone that's experienced the inner critic, you call it the saboteur, the judge, imposter syndrome. It's like the devil on your shoulder. It's the negative self-talk when you're exactly to your point, going to break out of your comfort zone doing something. So, you know, let's let's think about an athletic event or something like that. Oh, you can't do that. Do you remember the last time you tried that? It didn't go very well. Look at Aunt Susan. That went terribly for her. Um, the people are much better than you. Think about people starting new businesses. There's no space for you in that market, Jason. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who, you're a policeman. You're going to be a coach and a content creator. Like my yeah, saying, Your brain's my, always looking for that evidence, right? Yeah. To prove you that you cannot do this. Literally. And the reason it's doing this, this is a physiological thing that dates back to like survival time. So when we understand it, actually, it becomes so much easier to partner with your inner critic. So I've got quite a unique approach. There's a lot of um, books and messaging out there and all of it's really important, which is obviously we shouldn't be listening to that voice, like fine. But the the sort of the narrative is like crush a critic and like, Ugh! and I just think we haven't necessarily got it in the tank. Like, I'm knackered and I've got this voice going on at me. Like I don't think I've got it in me to like squash another enemy that lives in my own mind. Right. So my approach is slightly different in that we can partner with our inner critic. And I think that we could we can get a lot further in, in an easier way. So go Going back to like times when we, we needed uh, to live in community for survival, what would happen is, you know, we ha are literally surviving to our basic needs met. So food, water, shelter, heat, and everyone would have a role and we would organize ourselves in that community to make sure these roles were met. And we would all fundamentally stay alive and the big, scary, saber tooth tigers wouldn't get us like fine. Now, if I failed in one of my roles, if I um, messed up, did something bad. You know, if I was ostracized from the group, from the community, I would die. There's no question, especially in that sort of time of living. Like I cannot possibly meet my needs alone. So I need to stay connected to that group. I need to make sure I perform. I need to make sure I'm uh, accepted. And, and the con like the connection is what's the most important. The rejection is the thing we fear the most. OK. And social rejection is the number one fear of all humans. It's, it's so well documented, you know, that might be termed as public speaking. So people don't like that because you could be humiliated and rejected. That's how it shows up in these fears. Anyway, fast forward to now, it's perfectly fine for me to live alone with my daughter in, in a house and run yeah. my own life and I am safe and it's okay. But this physiology, this software, if you like, has not been updated for modern living. So what my lovely little inner critic will try and do if I'm going to go and, you know, put a video out or say something controversial, which I did the other day, which is not out yet, but, you know, and uh, it's going, <gasps> you have what Brene Brown calls the vulnerability hangover. And I was like, oh God, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe that was too out there. What if, what if, what if? This, it's trying to keep keep me in my comfort zone and the reason it's trying to do that is because that's the only way it knows how to keep me safe in what it knows so the comfort zone is what we know that's that is why it is the comfort zone it is known to us we know the good the bad and the ugly but hey like we can control it we've got the you know it's de-risked we can we can control the controllables yeah. and you can predict what's going to happen next because you're right. so used to what's happening in your environment Totally. Even if we're miserable as sin, you know, but you can yeah. stay in this comfort zone because we know it. So that's great. So that is the inner critic's job. OK, it's doing its best to make sure that you don't fail so that you're not rejected because it still thinks it still gets triggered thinking, my goodness, if if I'm rejected from saying something controversial, um, 
I might not get my basic needs met and I might not be able to survive. So it's purely that it hasn't had this like software upgrade like Windows, you know, 2023. It just hasn't had it yet. Yeah, or so, something very important to you is going to be taken away. And, you yeah. know, especially like on social media, if you have a platform and you say something a little controversial or you say something, you know, that's a little bit out there, you do run that risk. And so that fear just it's almost visceral. It goes throughout you. Yeah. But, you know, but you have that inner knowing that, that you have to say it because, you know, it's going to help people. Well, that is that's interesting because it is visceral. So the it yeah. is this physiological response. So it does send you into cancel culture, like sits so closely with that fear of social rejection. That is ultimately what it is. You know, like for me to be socially rejected, which is my number one fear as a human, and cancel culture is a very real possibility of that. So what that's going to do is it's going to trigger a trauma response in me: fight, flight, freeze, flop, or fawn. And I'm going to possibly react in one of those ways. I'm going to have the physiological experience of that as well in that moment. And so what all of that might do combined is make me go, let's play it safe. Let's play it safe. Not today. <laughs> you know, let's play it safe. I'm, I'm not going to do that today. So that's the role the inner critic has. But it's important for people listening to remember it's a well-meaning friend that's got it wrong. It is trying to do it because it, it wants to look after you and that's its only way of, of knowing how. Like I said, it's like an overbearing parent when you're going to learn how to ride a bike. You've got to fall and scrape your knees. That's how you're going to learn to get your balance. So you can like calm your inner critic and get it to become a big cheerleader of yours by reminding it of times that you have done brave things or even just like doesn't need to be like I climbed a mountain you know like right. I, I had that conversation with a friend that I was avoiding or I said no to that invitation and I'm still accepted by this group of people like, that's what this is where people pleasing comes from I can't possibly say no because then I'm I might be rejected or I might not be asked again like it's it's right. all everybody's gonna hate me and that's the way it's gonna be and I'm not gonna have any friends you know <laughs> and that's my life Exactly. And then here I am as a social pariah again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You mentioned flop and fawn, and it's not something that often gets talked about. Can you describe what those are for us? Yeah, I would love to. I think, I mean, this is something I'm speaking about a lot more personally, and there's a lot more on, on my YouTube channel about it as well. So fight, flight, freeze, I think we're all pretty familiar with now as the trauma responses. Flop is literally passing out. So uh, there's, you know, the videos of the grooms at the altar that are quite funny that, that pass out. Yeah. <laughs> or like, I always think of the little impala deer that they they bouncing around, they see a threat and they just fall over. So that's a good example of flop. Fawn is very different. And the thing I want to say first is when you're experiencing trauma, when a trauma response is activated, it is faster, much faster, if you think about this, than your your cognitive functioning. I'm tapping the front of my, my brain here, people that can't can't see who are listening in. So your prefrontal cortex, which lives sort of at the front of your brain, your broker's area, your language just behind that. When you start experiencing trauma, your blood flow gets rerouted to your amygdala, to your limbic system, sort of the people call it the lizard brain or the prehistoric area because this is where your trauma responses live, because I'm in danger. So right now I do not need to remember what I need to get from the supermarket or what's in my diary for tomorrow. That's unessential. And frankly, language is unessential. What's essential is get me the F out of this situation right now. So my brain, my, there's some blood's gone to here. I'm into this, this trauma response. I've got five responses to pick from. My brain is going to select for me. I haven't consciously done this. The response is the best suited to the situation. So, 
you know, it might be that I could run from a room because I, you know, there's you know, could be a spider or something, right? I'm being a bit facetious, but I could run away from that. It could be that there's something coming, and if I freeze, if I stay still enough for long enough, it might not see me. It could be something that, uh, you know, I might pass out just purely from the fear, and it's better that I, I'm unaware in that moment. My body might select it's, it's better for me to have that. It could be that it's something that I'm gonna take on and I feel that I can and I want to attack this and fight it or you know whatever it might be so I might be coming for me and my daughter and believe me I'd be uh, in full lioness mode in that moment fawn feels very different so if there was someone that came in here now and I I am here on my own and they might be much bigger than me or or something like that I'm none of those responses might be suitable I can't run they're in the doorway I can't fight them off definitely not by passing out something really bad might happen to me and so and by freezing is not going to help the situation either so I might start to fawn which could look like me coming on to them it could look like me being really friendly to them it could look like me trying to meet their needs it could look like a variety of different things that doesn't mean that I don't feel like I'm in danger I am but that's the response that's been selected for me so for example victims of domestic abuse would fawn quite a lot of the time because they're in a physical danger. And again, think about the other trauma responses. They might not be applicable. Potentially there's also children in, in the house, let's say. And so I would rather that, no, 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 no. I might fall in that situation. I grew up in a household of violence. My father was very violent towards me for a long time. I couldn't get my basic needs met. I couldn't leave. You know, there was nothing I could do in that situation. So I tried to be a good girl. I tried to be better. I tried to be because I must be bad. So I tried to be much better. I tried to make him happier. I tried to do nice things that would make myself more appealing so that I wouldn't be put through that violence again, so that I wouldn't be in danger. And just to go there and just a warning, and I'm sure you'll put this up. I'm just about to talk about sexual assault. So the same thing can happen in sexual assault. There can be, I work with victims of sexual assault often with the trauma work that I do. And a lot of people come and they have shame because that's what's left behind from trauma. You you have some shame and the shame is always around. And these are premeditated, you know, cases of sexual assault where there's no question that this is unfortunately what the perpetrator was planning to do from the beginning. And the individuals at some point during the attack may have fawned in some way to just try and either stay alive, speed thing, anything, right? Because again, the, think about the other responses maybe couldn't fight them off, nowhere to run, flopping could be tons worse and, and you're probably already frozen. So that is is something else almost in your survival toolkit that's coming out. But yeah, it, it ends up being this really elegant solution that just seems to be to be an eight, that it just like it comes up for you and it's like, right. boom, here it is. I'm in survival mode. I'm protecting myself. And this is the best way right now that I know how to do that. Yep. Most people have formed with a narcissistic boss because you've got your mortgage to pay and you've got your family to look after and you know this person's being toxic and awful and yet you still find yourself trying to placate them or be nice to them or please them because if this if this person sacks me or if I haven't got my job or I can't earn my money or you know or a colleague or being again connected in a group or a friendship group even I mean there are obviously scales I'm not saying that you know these are these are equal I just want to give some examples to people where they may have experienced fawning because in my experience of working with people there's no more shame that people take away than if they fawned because you're like why did I do that you know why was I so nice to this person that was 
you know, clearly not being very nice to me. The answer is a lot of the time you didn't choose it. It was chosen for you and your system was being, as you say, elegant in selecting a way to keep you alive. And your system can't tell the difference sometimes between a, a you know, a perpetrator and, and a physical attacker and something that is threatening your livelihood, like a, a boss at work or, or a mean colleague that might be a very political backstabber. Like it's, it's okay if that happened to you. And this, the only cure for shame, which is what we get left with is self-compassion. And that's why I want to talk about this. And thank you for giving me this, this opportunity to talk about this today, because I honestly think so many people are walking around with deep shame um, about it. Like, why do I keep going back to that toxic ex? Or, you know, he's so awful to me, or she's so awful to me. And, you know, and it's almost like, maybe people that have got some sort of addiction as well, which again, you know, that's, that's listening to Gabor Mate's work, people are finding a solution to the pain that they're in. But if you've had shame about something, it makes you feel like shame has a language of I am. So for years with my father, when he was being very violent towards me, you know, I'm a child, there's my, this parent of mine is very, very young, very young, same age as my daughter is now seven. And, uh, you know, there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with me because how could this person, this great person who is a, you know, don't forget, I was also told all the things that, that I'd made him, you know, I'd made him right. do how awful I was. So you just walk around believing I am bad. I am bad. So if I am bad, I might as well do bad things because I am bad. And I have people sit here with me and we're working through trauma that they say things like I am disgusting. Yeah. I am hopeless. I am weak. I am a failure guys around money i am a failure you know huge I'm, trigger. i'm never good enough right yeah huge trigger so that is is what you're left behind with and i just really want to firstly normalize it for anyone that might be hearing it in this way for the first time and just also to invite people if you are feeling like that like the only cure for shame is self-compassion it's the only only way to get rid of it and i think for me part of the journey to self-compassion was like the education was understanding it and that I couldn't possibly have done anything differently as a seven-year-old, which I know sounds really rational, but when you're, you know, told that you're the problem and you're bad and all these things, there's still a part of you that believes it for a really long time. Well, as a child, you're sitting there, you don't know how to digest this information. You certainly don't know what to do with it. So you're trying to figure all of these things out with a framework that you don't have. You don't have the language. You don't have anything from your past to draw from. You just know that you're experiencing this thing. It doesn't feel all that great. And I learned a new phrase recently, which I was completely unaware of, and it ends up being carried shame. Mm. And, and it just... I heard that and it just was such a light bulb moment for me that it's like you go through this and these things are constantly being projected onto you. And again, you don't know what to do with it. You just know you have this inner feeling and mm. you, you don't know what where it came from or maybe you do. But then you end up being, a, you know, as an adult and you look back on these things and it's like that was never mine to carry. That was somebody else's burden that they put on me. That's such a great point. There's, you know, a question that they often ask people or, or you know, they talk about something like, is it yours? Is yeah. that yours? Because if that is how you believe about yourself, or you think about yourself, that's one way of working. I mean, you know, with coaching, it's one way of working with someone. Or was it something that you were told about yourself? Or was it given to you? And the other thing with trauma as well, you can take on shame from something that you've seen happen to someone else. 
So you could do, I have a lot of people that, especially again with um, in childhood, that maybe have witnessed some violence or perhaps something sexual. And it was way beyond their understanding at that age, you know. And then parents, again, maybe not uh, meaning badly, but they might say, oh, don't, no, no, don't worry about that. Forget about that. Forget you saw it. Don't think about it again, right? But right. the thing is that the loop is still open because you're, as you say, you're too young. The language isn't there. You can't rationalize what's happening. And it, it stays a bit like a record that jumps, you know, like an old vinyl, like you and I both, like vinyl that you would jump on the, on the thing. And so, and it doesn't close. The cycle doesn't close. And then you can take on the shame, the humiliation from having witnessed something else and not being able to like, if you like compartmentalize it or find a home for it. And then just from what I've seen in real life experience, mm -hmm. you know, then we start leaning into maladaptive coping mechanisms later on in life uh, mm -hmm. to be able to navigate those old feelings that we experience that shame. Yeah. Yeah. Shame. It, shame makes you feel isolated. You know, let's think about me. I am bad. So if I am bad, like who's going to want to be friends with me? If I am bad, who's going to want to be in a relationship with me? They're going to find it in a critic. They're going to find out later on in life what I'm really all about. You know, who's going to want to listen to things I've got to say? Who's going to want to, um, yeah, listen to my work, read my book, whatever it might be? You know, who's because I am bad. Right. So if that's until there's a, a way or you find yourself able to do, do the work of processing that you, you go around with that belief. It's like lenses. You're looking out of, you know, forget the rose tinted lenses. It's the, the shame spectacles that you've got on and that's how you're viewing the world. And then the thing with your lovely little inner critic, this is where it can step in again, because obviously my inner critic doesn't want me to get rejected. So it's like, Oh my God, you're bad. Like what we need to do is you need to be perfect so because we can't let anyone here know that you're bad because that's terrible and no one will want to know you or be friends with you or ever date you ever again or anything like that. So what we must do is we must be perfect. And so we must people please. We must be polished all the time. We must never mess up. We must, you know, be be whatever perfection might be in that. Don't moment. don't embarrass me. Right. Yeah. Oh, oh, I felt that one. I know. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> that's an old, that's an old, uh, an old, old pattern. Yeah, I felt that one. Yeah, that that's such a big one. And the the unfortunate thing is, this ends up becoming a self fulfilling prophecy in a lot of your relationships because that's how you learned to relate to other people. And so a big part of my platform, we focus on attachment styles and not from the aspect of trying to figure out the other person, because that's what people want to do. You know, you've got the anxious attacher and they're in this place of, well, I got to figure out the avoidant. I got to know what they're thinking. That way I can uh, predict what's going to happen next in the relationship and they're not going to leave me and they're going to stay. And it's like, no, we learn about attachment so you can learn about you, who yeah. you are, where you're going, what you're doing, how you relate to other people and how you make other people feel in your presence. And so I'm doing a 21 day self-love challenge currently. And we, we focus on a lot of these different aspects, you know, the self-compassion, the self-acceptance from your background and your experience when it comes to attachment styles, um, how does that relate to our relationships and can it bleed into other areas of our life? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think that attachment styles show up in, in a variety of different ways. I mean, if you think about if you and I were working at the same company and we had different attachment styles and we've both got the same job, let's just say, you know, working on the same project together and we get the same email, we're probably going to have a really different response to it. It's a good way of explaining it. You know, like we're going to get we're going to have a very different response. Like I might be like, 
oh well I'm gonna book a holiday and use it now and like I'm I, you know like being avoidant or whatever and like never mind I'm gonna check out I've got three other jobs I've been talking to anyway so whatevs you know and uh no, just... and it's like that Jennifer Lawrence meme I, I used it recently what do you mean what do you mean <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like, literally that and then yeah. and then yours might be like oh, what do you think's happened what happened in the meeting like you say like trying to sort of control and rationalize every outcome yeah your so. nervous system just takes right off completely and i think it would show up in friendship dynamics as well actually particularly in you know like building new bonds and uh yeah maybe like new friendships or even even ones that are in transition and, and flux and change which they do in life that is what happens in friendships especially in sort of you know adult friendships when when other things are going on in life so i think attachment styles the knowledge of attachment styles is really powerful and uh, yeah the little inner critic can can also be um you know deeply involved in that as well as i'm sure you know <laughs> oh yeah and so for those people that quite they haven't they're on their journey they're kind yeah. of in the beginning of it and they haven't let go of that idea that i can fix or change the avoidant what is something that we can give to them today whether it's a tool or a method or something that they, a different way of thinking about that situation to help guide them through that process well, as someone that's a reformed avoidant, I can tell you now, like, there ain't no changing, like, uh, what I mean by that. So my, I would have had a tendency in the past to be very avoidant. And I, I am, like, happily sort of secure. But I would, um, if I was in a stressful environment with a relationship, or if relationship felt stressful to me, I would have avoidant tendencies. I'm happy to own that. So and what how that would look is me flat, like flexing my passport and just taking some time out. It's just like, I just need some time out of here. And it's not um, to disconnect from necessarily the relationship with the individual. That's a way that I find connection back to myself. So it's just a way right. of regulating my system. So, you know, I would I would invite also, I think, like taking a stand for yourself. If you find yourself being quite anxious and anxious attachment, the thing that I've learned through so many courses and bodies of work and, and, and books and just people and, and everything is that the most attractive thing and the most important thing is to understand your needs and then have that as your benchmark. And whatever anyone else is doing, um, you know, you need to take some time in dating, obviously, to kind of get to know if this is value based going to be a, a you know, fit and, and if it could be a relationship, but the more and more you focus on on really understanding yourself and your needs and what makes you feel good, it's so attractive. You know, that is like, when I speak to my male friends, and they're like, oh my God, when a woman just tells you what she wants, you know, even like a dinner, like, do you know what? I just feel like, please can I have the two desserts. I'm just going to have a spoonful of each rather than like, oh, I better not order that. What will he think of me? Or, or you know, and you get, you get so into this perfectionism, which I used to live with, of just trying to present myself as perfect. But fundamentally what that's doing, and by always trying to intuit the other person's needs, is you're denying connection because I'm presenting a mask it's not how I am all the time. You know, I'm presenting you with a, an unrealistic mask. And a quite a toxic knock-on of that can be that you're going to find it really difficult to relax, to feel safe in that person's presence. You're probably going to find it quite difficult to receive in that relationship from that person and, and really allow them in because you're kind of already starting off on... Um, you know, a bit like in survival zone, you're, you're, you're constantly trying to sort of maintain this um, image. And, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, because I really do understand why people do it. It's, it's because, you know, I did it for years being a perfectionist, because I was desperately ashamed of myself for being bad. And so I'm trying to present this fantastic image. Now, mine would manifest as avoidant in relationship, but that was also part of it. 
because I probably didn't feel fully deserving. So I'd need to press the jump up and down on the great big exit button, you know, and just have a few days out of the, to like kind of find myself again. I, I just can't give you what you want. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't be who you need me to be. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. But, but from a different <laughs> dialing code, <laughs> like for a different international dialing code. Yeah. But, it would be true. And it would not be done to be cruel. It would be done because in that moment I was flooded. I'd be so overwhelmed. Right. And, and it would be because I didn't feel, you know, I still thought I was bad. So that would be, it would, you know, people are a mirror. So someone showing up and being like, I just want to love you uh, to me at that time would have just <laughs> been too much. So it's not, yeah. um, I don't think anyone's, good or bad or anything like that. And if people are feeling very avoidant, sorry, anxious, and they think they might be dating, you know, an avoidant person. Like for me, it was really essential to be able to just kind of regulate myself. And it still is. It's important for me to take time away. There's a beautiful book. I don't know if you've read it called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. Mm -hmm. And it's fantastic. And actually I'd recommend that anyone that's um, maybe finds himself in this anxious avoidant dance, both sides reads it. So he talks about something called your upper limit. And it's, brilliant it goes it goes across everything sports performance everything and basically we hit our upper limit when everything starts going really well so i've met this guy it's going really really well like he seems great and then what happens is some of my childhood conditioning and messaging kicks in which is well that sounds too good to be true or you know or but you're bad so this isn't going to work out or you know any of the other thing you know nothing good comes easily there must be something wrong with him or with yeah, your when's that other shoe going to drop right there we go so then there's so then we're on upper limiting so then here are the voices in my own conditioning system old stuff old patterns you name it going off so what i might start doing is self sabotaging as an avoidant my self sabotage is vamanos you know, as a as an, an anxious person, my self-sabotage might be, oh, God, oh, God, let me control, let me control, let me control. And Gay Hendricks says in the book, and it's amazing, and he says in the book that the thing that makes us the most activated, the, the thing that activates the upper limit the most, because jobs can do it. You know, you think you've been promoted above your, oh, people are going to find out you're not really that good. Or, you know, I think you did lie about that qualification. Yeah, you're a fraud. You didn't get being cookery after all, you know, like, yeah, like 15 years ago, they'll find out and you'll be, you know, you'll be running through the streets like Game of Thrones, people saying shame. Like that's the kind of stuff that goes to your head, right? So, but he says that the number one thing that is going to uh, kick off the upper limit is romantic relationship with another person because you physically get high from another person like it's going to start triggering your whole system especially in a new relationship and so he talks about the importance of ensuring you have autonomy it doesn't need to be like my old self which is like i'm off for a week and then i'll be back um you know i think it's also because i've got heavy sagittarius placements but there we go so uh, you know it's like uh it's more about just taking some time out in between settling your system your nervous system getting back into that, you know, processing maybe the conversation, the information, and then again, getting back in touch with your needs. And so looking at it from there, but it's a really fantastic book and it talks about how we self-sabotage. And I think leaning into your work, which is exceptional, by the way, I, I watch yours all the time. I love it. And I think looking at how the self-sabotage when we up a limit, you know, there's someone I really like, it's going really well. Weirdly, one of our first reactions is what's going to go wrong. And then you try and stop it. And you're going to try and stop it in different ways and different styles. If you're dating now, right? How are you communicating with someone else? Your boundaries, what do boundaries look like? 
And, you know, we recently had this thing on social media. It was trending with Jonah Hill and, you know, everybody went down that rabbit hole. And I think we kind of confuse what boundaries actually look like versus trying to manage somebody else's behavior yes. and, and, and who they are and what they do and just kind of how they present themselves and their own level of authenticity. And clearly, like that particular situation from the outside looking in is fairly toxic. Yeah. So boundary, a way that I like to sort of discuss or look at boundaries is boundaries is a way to keep people in your life not necessarily to keep them out. So obviously if there's someone deeply toxic and we don't want them around, like hard, hard stop boundary, fine. However, if there's someone that maybe, you know, perhaps you're starting to build a romantic relationship or a friendship or whatever it might be, or something's in flux, or maybe you've just got stuff going on. Like I've got a load of work on right now. I can't be as sociable as normal. You know, or I can't, maybe I can't be as supportive to a friendship let's say at the moment where I usually am and maybe a friend's going through some stuff and maybe I'm normally available and I just can't right now like life single mummyhood whatever and so I might need to put a boundary in but there's I think what's been missing in the conversation about boundaries is people are like oh it's a boundary of mine and that can be a bit ick and a bit unskillful and not necessarily in service of the relationship so like I say if, if there's something toxic let's be yeah, fine like you know obviously have a boundary but if it's someone that you care about and you can communicate, listen, I love you so much. Did it with one of my friends the other day. Said, I'm really sorry. I feel like I haven't been there in the way that I would like to normally, but I've got this, 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 and this at the moment. We've got some time put aside in August. We're traveling together. Me and this wonderful girlfriend of mine, I'm going to visit her. Like, I really cannot wait for some proper quality time with you. I'm clearing everything when we're there. It's just going to be fully focused time. You know, I am around, but I'm very aware I haven't been as available because of these reasons, which she's fully aware of. I love you so much. And she's like, darling, don't worry about it. Like, and I, I get that. Don't you worry. I'm so looking forward to the time we've got together. So that has been a bit of a boundary, if you like, in, in our friendship, because I just simply haven't got capacity at the moment to, to be in the, the role that I normally would. And she's been exceptional and exquisite about it. And we're both really looking forward to that deep connect that we're going to have over too many glasses of champagne on the terrace. You know, you know it's going to be fantastic. So that's an example and there's a saying that I like, so if we go into dating for, for your audience about how to use a boundary, particularly if you're being very triggered, if we think about that, that work I just mentioned about, and we're, you know, we're getting flooded because we are nothing triggers us more, you know, than another person in a romantic relationship. There was something that I saw recently, and I think I put it on, on Instagram, which is if you keep your boundaries quite firm, you can keep your heart really soft. And that's important to me. I'm a very sensitive person. Like I'm very caring, I'm very nurturing. I like to care for people, you know, in relationship, my friendships, romantic partners, whatever. That is something that I really enjoy doing. But equally, I won't self-abandon, you know, and I won't self, um, yeah, I won't self-abandon or self-betray. So if there's things that are important in my life, if someone asks me, you know, can you do this or can you attend that? And I'm really sorry, I can't. I've got this certain thing happening you know, which is, which is an example, like I need to stay in, in my center as well. So yeah, by having a, a strong boundary, doesn't mean we have to keep everybody out, but just having a strong boundary about what it is that, you know, we know nurtures us and keeps me as my best self means that I can keep my heart really, really soft. And irrespective of how somebody else might behave, if we talk about romantic relationship, I know that I'm going to be okay. And that's a really big misconception about the avoidant is, well, they're just unloving and they're a narcissist. And the reality is they do care. They do mm -hmm. love you. They do want to be with you. They actually care very deeply. Mm -hmm. And if you can learn to understand what I call their intimacy threshold, 
right? I can only take so much. I ha it's a thermometer. It goes up to a certain point and then it just bursts, right? And then I got to go. And so that's when you understand that intimacy threshold of your partner, then you can start to have a conversation around that or a safe word, right? Where it's like monkey balls, right? You just yell it and it's like, okay, I know you need to go relax for a little bit, whether that's an hour or two hours or, you know, a day, you know, if you're not living together and stuff like that. But you have this, that, that boundary of, okay, I'm going to say that that's our safe word. I need to go find myself again because I'm starting to feel a little bit lost. I'm starting to, to have that internal activation, that visceral reaction to whatever's happening in this moment. But as the anxious attacher, it just like, it triggers them so badly. Even if you do tell them I'm coming back um, because it just triggers their abandonment wound and that yeah. fear of rejection. And that's where, again, I think exactly to your point, you design in. So like, what do I need? I need just like this afternoon, oh, I'm just going to go and do some exercise or something that validate makes me feel like me again. Um, and then, you know, and also taking ownership and this is my stuff. So, you know, but I will check in with you tonight and I'll check in with you tomorrow morning. You know, so I think there's like, it's okay to, again, to ask for those things to be met. It's okay to design that in and no relationship will ever be without any kind of conflict. You know, we're two completely different people. There's going to be things that just are not, you know, we're not the same, we don't think in the same way. So that's the other thing I would say, maybe being anxious as well, is that perhaps don't feel as able to voice your needs, because you don't want to rock the boat or, you know, send send the avoidant off somewhere else even more. But actually, it's almost reassuring. It's like, okay, well, this is the container. And this is this is the space to move within. So yeah, I mean, having just knowing what your needs are in relationship, and then being really okay with that and just letting that shine out and letting someone meet you where you are is, is just the most incredible gift. How can we navigate conflict in relationships? There's a cool tool that I learned in a systems coaching. So systems is anything bigger than one. So couples, you know, maybe co-founders in a business. So just think about groups and teams and things after thousands of people in huge rooms that we've done before. And so there's a great tool called the 2% truth. And this is a life hack for conflict in relation. And actually, it'd be quite a good life hack for, I think, this sort of anxious avoidant, um, even just like checking in with yourself, okay? So if you if you and I were dating and you went, Annalie, you are selfish, I would be like, <laughs> you know, I'd be so triggered. <laughs> like, I'd be like, I'm not selfish. But if you, you know, because you're- I'm just me, avoidant. <laughs> off, like British Airways, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I'd be like, get in the jet. Like, yeah, yeah, I'd be, but if you said to me, you're so, you're, you are selfish, I'd be triggered, you know, and I'd be like, because you're telling me I'm the sum of one thing. Now, I'm not in, my entire entity, Annalie, is not selfish. However, if you said to me, Annalie, can you own being 2% selfish sometimes in this relationship? I'd say, babe, I can raise you. I, you know, at times I can be about 30% selfish in our dynamic. And also I can explain where maybe that serves the relationship or myself. And then that's when you can have a conversation about it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if you've, if you are having uh, want to have a, again, maybe like a needs conversation, the 2% truth is so safe because it's like, how much can you own you know, let's say there's an issue, like not wanting to go and see someone's parents or or something, you know, I really feel like we always go to your parents and we never we never go to my friends, okay? Like it's quite a common one, right? I, you know, I really feel like we're spending much more time with you. If I said, we always go to your friends, always, we're always at your friends, you'd be like, no, we're not, because three weeks ago we went to, you know, or whatever. Right. If I said to you, can you own that lately, like, can you own 2% of the, 
the time of our socializing is generally more oriented towards you and, and your friends and your hobbies, you'd be able to say, well, I can own that it's about 50 or 60%. You know, actually, I, I really get that. So what it's doing is it's depersonalizing the complaint or the issue from the individual because you telling me I am selfish firstly you're not going to get very far I'm going to be hugely flooded and triggered and secondly that just simply isn't who I, I'm not 100% of that because there's so many other things going on but I can definitely own being selfish in the relationship and I can definitely own you know a percentage of that and some of that will be positive because part of that selfishness might be like well yeah you know I need to go to the gym because that makes me a feel much better and it's really important for my mental health so I did prioritize that you'll over. love me a lot more if I go to the gym today <laughs> yeah well you know I needed to, I prioritized that but you're yeah. right you are right and actually I could probably dial that back a bit because I can see that you're struggling and another thing that Brene Brown and her husband do which is brilliant is they do a check-in um in the mornings they do this uh, check-in where they ask where they're at that day is like a percentage so if you think about it like a battery on your on your phone and they both check in and they're like, oh, I'm about 70% today. I had a great night's sleep. I'm feeling brilliant. And you might say, oh, my God, I slept terribly. My shoulder was hurting me again. And I'm, you know, going through all this stuff. And, and I'm 20%. I'll be like, oh, gosh, well, look, let me sort it out. I'll I'll do dinner. I'll sort this. I'll sort this. this, this. And then another day, it might be the way around. That's great. But she says, if they're both really low, let's say that because that happens. So both of you are under stress, both of you are uh, tired, both of you are high new parents, like both of you are going through through lots of stuff, then you might both be really low, in which case they strip the engine. So that's when it's like, right, we don't need to go to that event. Let's get a takeaway for dinner. Let's, you know, can someone bring that child back from school for, you know, what can we possibly do to try and make sure that we, you know, bring our, ourselves back up again so that we don't continually live in this place and that's really amazing as well and that helps avoid conflict and then more importantly it helps avoid resentment which is i've been doing blah 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 blah, 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 blah. and like and then and someone else goes well i've done this this isn't this this so yeah. yeah well and so that's a thing in the anxious and avoidant trap is the anxious attacher generally finds themselves in this deep place of resentment because they're keeping track of every little thing they're keeping score on on everything i'm pouring into into the avoidant i'm doing all of this stuff for you i'm showing up in every way i know possible what they don't realize that they're doing is the anxious attacher is actually in a state of avoidance and so they're avoiding being abandoned they they're avoiding that fear of rejection and they just don't recognize it in the moment. And that's what kind of perpetuates the cycle between those two people. And, yeah. then, and then the avoidant is often very anxious as well because yeah. they've, they've hit that intimacy threshold. And now they're in this place of fight or flight. I got to go. I can't deal with this right now. I'm out. Peace. And, and, they, bl and they blame the anxious attacher for that. Like, it's all your fault. You did yeah. this. And I think what's, what's heartbreaking about that is that neither person is being themselves. Right. Is you know, and if I if we go back to the inner critic and the wearing of a mask, you know, the anxious attacher is more likely to be trying to be perfect and sort of performing and keeping and and you know trying to work everything out and and second guess and be three steps ahead and and you know have looked over every avenue to, to try and keep themselves safe because both people are doing this right. It's about safety, which I know you know and you speak about it so beautifully. The avoidant Thank person, you. also, oh, it's honestly it's stunning. I love your channels. And then the avoidant person 
is doing the same thing. They're feeling unsafe. They're feeling either overwhelmed or flooded or, you know, again, there's there's abandonment stuff going on there as well. There's a lot of insecurity, but it feels easier to step away because you think the pain won't be as bad if I if I put some distance in. So both people are not fully showing up because neither person feels fully safe. Both people are wearing a mask. They're both doing it for really good reasons. They both feel the underlying like, you know, tension and resentment. And then maybe it doesn't work rather than both people. I mean, I've been going on about it a bit, but rather than both people just, you know, leaning into this uh, idea of just being able to share and being confident enough in who you are and what your needs are. And if that isn't with that person, then that's okay. Like I'd rather find find the person that it, it is a match for and that can, you know, hold this energy for me and that I can really show up in. And there is also a really big responsibility and all the people working with you to, to understand that about yourself. And it, I think it's it's really critical to take responsibility. And this is where that boundary stuff gets thrown around. It's very easy to say that and not take responsibility for yourself. And it can be quite unskillful. Oh, it's boundary. And what are you doing? You know, this keeps, kind of keeps being a bit of a theme here. You know, so okay. you, are you learning from it? Are you implementing something? Are you changing something? Or are you just sort of chucking boundaries around because it's a bit of a trendy thing to say? And again, you're avoiding doing the work. Yeah, it's so, definitely just because it's trendy. Yeah, oh, 100%. And, and I can make a TikTok video on it and get a bunch of views, but I'm not actually going to work on anything. That's not going to happen. Mm. It's remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's well, you know, it's not in, in the end. Yeah, it's, it can show up a lot. But that's that's what I that's what I sort of see is that the inner critic encourages us to wear a mask because, remember, it's trying to make sure we don't fail. It's trying to make sure we're not disconnected. It's trying to make sure we stay safe it's got good intention it just does it in a crappy way and then we take that into relationship and we take in this you know we're upper limiting we're self-sabotaging we're I'm sure you look at Dr Harville Hendricks's work and you know you've got the emotional person and the thinker and we're attracted like magnets and then we repel each other from again childhood messaging about how that's not safe to be together and it's when you when you unpick all of this you start to understand it you can almost start to like the art of non-attachment you can start to watch your emotions and your triggers kind of sort of outside of yourself and be like i am safe so whatever's going on whatever this person may do i trust myself to even if i develop deep feelings and this may not work out i'm still maintaining my life i'm not self-abandoning i'm practicing the things that are important to me while still giving and trusting in this relationship and really respecting and honoring this person but I can relax because fundamentally I know that I will be okay irrespective of what happens. I love that. And that needs to be like a mantra in the back of everyone's mind is that I'm going to be okay mm. no yeah. matter no matter what happens. The, the 2% truth and being able to take ownership of your role, your part in that relationship. Have you seen couples therapy on Showtime? Oh, I haven't, no. So... I got the free trial, uh, and this isn't a plug for anything, but you get the free trial, you binge watch it, you go through it, and Orna is the therapist, and she's absolutely amazing, but she goes through and she's able to you know, navigate couples from the perspective of the other person, and they, she goes back and forth with, with mm. each, each person in the relationship so, so they can try and see what the other person is experiencing. Like, can you see this? And so the 2% truth reminds me of that, right? Can you take ownership? And it's, it's big because you're actually de-escalating the argument and you're diffusing it in that moment by, by using that technique. So I, I love that very much. And then you touched on the avoidant and it really is 
energy based. You know, mm -hmm. we're we're so rooted in our energy, and you know what happens is we're not able to make space for the anxious person in that moment. I can't hold your energy right now because it's just it's too much for me. I can't handle what you're going through and what I'm going through in this moment. And that's usually when the avoidant, like you said, they grab their passport and they're out the door. I mean, I think you know all of this, but most people do not believe that they are worthy of love exactly how they are. Like me right now today in my gym kit at home, you know, do I, do I think that I am exactly like, you, you know, flood me with unconditional love? Like I don't need to do anything for it. Most women feel in particular, especially around maybe like sex and pleasure as well, that they need to have earn something so like my house must be perfect I must be perfect I must look perfect I must um say all the right things I must maybe earn something first like and I know men feel the same I have loads of male clients and, and they they get very overwhelmed at the thought of just being loved for exactly who they are in this moment not when I when I lose 10 pounds when I get that promotion when I get this bigger house but I, you know, none of those things just like literally as you are right now is yourself and so what happens is we then go into this like you know that can be people pleasing based that can be like getting a bit more triggered into uh you know maybe more natural feeling attachment styles as well because just having that safety and and sort of anchoring in yourself that you really are just as I am right now not I'll be happy when you know, right now, I am so deserving of, you know, incredible love and incredible relationship. And, and that takes a lot of work to get there, you know, and it's ever and it can be ever evolving and also ask me on a different day, you know, there are days you're like, ah, you know, but that that is, I think, a huge trigger for people is that fundamentally, you don't feel worthy yourself. And so then you're not feeling worthy. If we go back to my I am bad, I'm ashamed need to start hiding this stuff, need to start armoring up, need to start however that looks, being perfect or whatever it might be or overly successful or, you know, anything I might need to do. People exit relationships all the time. That's Dr. Harville Hendricks as well. You know, you can, you, because you're, you're again, so triggered by the intimacy because you don't feel worthy that I'm going to exit and exit could be cheating, but exits are work. You know, I'm going to work all the time. I'm going to, because that that's, makes me validated and that's a good thing that I'm doing. But actually I'm still avoiding intimacy being in my on my phone of an evening I'm avoid I'm just I've got to do this I've got to get back to so and so I've got to book this thing I've got to sort that out for the kids like I'm avoiding intimacy you know intimacy is into me see like we said that a lot in the coaching community but yeah. I'm avoiding allowing you really looking into me because I'm probably don't feel worthy I mean you would have I imagine had to do this there's borderline nothing more horrendous in the world than eye gazing exercises in coach training school have you had to do it <laughs> It's important to do it though, if you want to yes. cultivate intimacy with your partner. And it's such oh. an it's such an easy drill, but it's so freaking uncomfortable. And it's why, yes. like I always tell people, you got to build up to it. Like if you yeah. start, if you start with the five second hug, 10 second hug, 15 second hug, 30 second hug, and then move into things like uh eye gazing or doing breath work together side by side in the same room, you know, it's at incredible. least you're at least you're sharing space in that moment. But isn't it remarkable that I think most people would rather do an Iron Man than look in their partner's yeah. eyes for two minutes? Honest, honestly, I'm not being facetious. And it's so, when you go through various coach training schools, at every training all the time, you have to do eye gazing with strangers. And so like, I've become a bit more desensitized to it. But it's amazing what can happen in, and, and it's so 
intimate, but we will do anything to like avoid that kind of intimacy. And I said, like, I'd be someone that you've like laid in bed next to for 10 years. And you, the thought of doing that with that person is just overwhelming. So we, we do a lot of the time we're choosing these exits to avoid intimacy. And I think it's to do with our own self-worth. I mean, it, what happens is just boom, tears. It brings up this oh, visceral, yeah. visceral reaction from so deep down that you can just feel it in your stomach. <laughs> You're like, no, I I am not doing this, you know, because now I have to feel feelings. I'm not going to feel feelings. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't need that. And things that maybe I've been trying to hold together about myself, things I've been maybe, you know, some good old shame that I've been trying to keep hidden in my system. You know, that act of just being so intimate and looking into each other's eyes, I feel I feel so exposed. You know, I feel like I'm that is just such an, an intimate way for me to be exposing myself as well. I can't hide in my busyness or something else I'm doing at the moment. Yeah. Or my stoicism or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You, you touched on like friend breakups briefly um what what does that look like how do we navigate a friend breakup it's so common and it pops up all the time in my comment section so i thought i'd ask you that question do you know i get the most questions about that as well so it's like unbelievably common and i work with this amazing team who do my my videography and and help me and they're both like one yeah your videos are amazing by the way you've got a great team and it's like i'm like i can't wait until the day i have a team because it'll be amazing or all local. We've, I've known them for years. But my videographer is 22. He's incredible. And my awesome. person does all my post and design is 25. So, you know, I'm 42. But I would talk to them about it. We talk when we're filming. And I'm like, have you guys experienced this or what's going on for you? And so in, in that age group in particular, the thing that seems to be showing up the most is when, and it's actually, it's really hard, is when, say, you've been through like quite a dark time or something really difficult, and then you get some success or just something joyful, like I've got a new job or I've, I'm dating someone I really care about. And you can see someone like one of your friends that you always thought was going to be there for you and they don't even raise a smile, you know, or there's some like comment or you just and it's quite shocking because you think, well, hang on. At first, was that what? You know, I thought we were in a, in a friendship group. Or I thought that we were, you know, we were tight or we're a good group. And what's happening most of the time is that person is in some kind of pain themselves and we are mirrors so when something is happening to you you're shining a light often into the the things going on you know that maybe people aren't feeling so great about I was told this when I was going through my divorce it was a really powerful and valid piece of advice which was the people that you thought would always be there won't but don't worry because there'll be people that you never thought that would step in that do and that was exactly what happened there were people that I thought I could 100% count on that would you know still be inviting me to things or checking in or whatever you know and and it was really difficult at the time and quite heartbreaking but thank goodness this person had told me this because I felt you know to be prepared is to be well armed and so I was kind of like right and then exactly as they said what happened was there were people that you know the kindness of strangers there were things that I people that I never expected to step in and offer me and my daughter just love and support and and that was also right for exactly where I was in my life at that time so I would invite anyone watching and listening this to think about that is that you know I'm quite spiritual as well so I try not to Buddha says we should neither cling nor resist and I'm trying as I get older to get better you know with that with just allowing and if if somebody doesn't or they or they cannot be with me in that moment that's okay you know, and so maybe that means a boundary, maybe it's a period of time thing. Like I said, maybe it's that I just need some time out because I've got to deal with this and I'll be back. Maybe it's that we're full circling. 
More often than not, what I find out later down the line is that someone's going through some stuff and they maybe felt they couldn't share or there was something that they were dealing with in that moment. But we are mirrors. So if someone is finding that a friend can't cheer for you, obviously we don't want that. But it could be that they're not feeling particularly great about something in their own existence at the moment. And also they can be, you know, we are inherently fairly selfish creatures and we do think about what might happen to us first. So, you know, you might start dating someone and they're like, they're worried about losing you. Although they're happy for you. You'd be really happy for a friend. You can be so happy, but maybe that was like, but we were like doing everything together. Like you became my person in our like breakup. And, you know, we I could always rely on you when everyone else is married and stuff like that. And we always did everything together. And then someone meets somebody and you're like, oh, you know, I am happy for you. No, I don't have anybody. No, no. So it can be, it doesn't, it's not necessarily bad, but it might not be, there's, there's a, there can be a lot going on, but just to reassure people, if people are stepping out of your life, let them and just be sure that the right people will step in. They always do. And just remember your new life is going to cost you your old one because you're going to grow. You're going to change. You're going to become different. You're going to expand your consciousness. You're going to raise your vibration. And as you do those things, the blinders come off and new opportunities start to enter into your existence Mm -hmm. and they become available to you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You miss it otherwise. Yeah. And I love that you keep mentioning age three times now that, mm-hmm. that I've counted. So happy birthday, because you just had a birthday. Thank you. Yeah. And if you guys don't follow Annalie's uh, YouTube channel, make sure that you go and do that because she just started it up. She's going to produce a ton of valuable content as she has today with us. I like that you mentioned that your videographers, not only are they local, but they're younger mm-hmm. and I, I just had a podcast with Stone Fred- Fredrickson, and he's all over TikTok. He's mm-hmm. Co- Coach Stone. Not sure if you've seen him, but he does all the TikTok growth and mindset. He's 19 years old, but he created just you know an amazing platform for himself. He created an amazing business for himself, and he continues to grow. And he has such a wonderful mindset and this booming voice that you know is obviously meant for uh, video and mm-hmm. and radio. But to recognize that, you know, in order to grow, in order to gain new skill sets, in order to become different and to grow your channel and to grow all the things that you're creating, going to the people that know how to do this stuff, even though they're 22 and they're younger, right? We often think of things when we're in our 40s of, well, those young guys, those young people, they just, you know, whatever. And I know best and I'm going to keep moving down this path. And it's like, ah, but do you? Right. So it's really important to embrace like the younger people that are in our environment and try to lift them up along with us as they're going to show us skills that we never thought would even exist. And I've learned so much from people that, you know, are a decade, two decades younger than me. And so to be able to allow yourself to do that, I think, is so important oh, to, I love gr- it. to grow in any area. Yeah, no, I love it. And it's what there's. It's really interesting because when, when I had that chat with them about the friendships and stuff, it is universal. I think it happens in every decade of your life or every chapter in your life. So the subject area of what their friends were not cheering for them about might be a bit different to say me, but it it's something that is happening and affecting everybody. So it's really good that I get to have those conversations with them as well. They're amazing. Annalie, how can people reach out to you and tell them a little bit about your inner critic masterclass? Oh, thank you. So yeah, I have a a masterclass. Like I say, my approach on the inner critic is that it's a well-meaning friend gone wrong. And I've got this beautiful masterclass on my website, which is AnnaLeeHowling.com. And you actually go in, it's like a a visualization and you go through it. I explain everything we've done today in more detail, but you get to meet your own inner critic. You will meet that voice in your head. You go into conversation with it. You get to find out why it's behaving, how it is, and more importantly, how to collorate with it and be cheerleaders for one another and move forward. And it's 
amazing and the feedback is really incredible and I do that with like celebrity clients right through to sports people and everybody they, they all have the same thing with me so for the first time that's been distilled in September I'm going to be launching a, a year-long program for people as well to do it again self-study in their own pace but then have a portal and have access to me and have your questions answered as well I want to be able to to work more with people so what, what's that year-long pro program going to look like it's really a way of like making it more accessible i'm trying to remove the privilege so i'm trying to find mm -hmm. a way that we can do it into smaller modules and people can like, kind of work through all of my work we've got a beautiful self-reflection guide which is exceptional to be honest it's like a a real deep dive attachment styles is in there actually there's a okay. bit on attachment styles. It, it's on. important it completely just to understand yeah. your relationship to pleasure do you know your needs all of it's in yeah. there so that's you can buy that individually now that's on there the self-reflection guide and then all of these things are going to go into a program which is just like a, a year-long self-study you can do it in a day if you want or spread it out and then i said there's going to be a portal where people can connect so it can be community where you can meet like-minded people because that's the other thing we found is that when you're maybe in a transition yourself you, even your best friends who love you dearly they just might not be there at the same time as you and so you finding community like through the work you're doing your platforms and on this portal where people can have safe conversation and go this is where I'm at have people like swapping numbers and you know making friends it's really nice so that's important to me is creating community Instagram is my biggest platform which is at Annalie Howling I am on TikTok I need, need some housekeeping it's not like yours that's at Annalie Howling um, and then yeah YouTube launched last week thank you for that which is also Annalie Howling and there'll be a lot on there and there's a lot more about the fawning in great detail um, relationship there's something about the attachment in our physiology and why we might go back to the the toxic x all of it that's amazing you're absolutely brilliant did you mention so you have the guide do you also have a book uh no that's something that might be in in the works at the moment in the background so i i think you should definitely write one people have been asking me to do the same thing and i'm like you know I, I have already have the table of contents. I'm ready to go on this, but I need a ghostwriter. I've got a lot of memos and a lot of dictations and voice memos. So we'll see how that goes. I think it would be a gift if you did.